<clears throat> we'll turn your Bibles uh, back to our last reading and the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, and this morning I'm going to preach from verses 15 through to uh, 22. 2 Corinthians 1 from verse 15 through to 22 on uh, Paul's uh, assertion to these Christians at Corinth that Jesus Christ is God's amen, God's amen, however way you uh, prefer to pronounce it. But before we come to the preaching of the word, let me lead us once more in prayer. I'll shortly, I'll briefly ask God's blessings upon the preaching of the word. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for your living word. We know that your word is alive and even when there is bad preaching, even when there is a bad hearing, so, so powerful is God's word that who knows what takes place when the spirit takes that truth and um, transforms the heart. And yet, Lord, we, we don't want to be bad preachers or bad hearers. We, we want nothing that will be an obstacle to your move among us. So just praying that you would help me as I explain the word, that you would, uh, you would uh, empower me, energize me. You would, oh Lord, you will uh, remember the human frailties that mean that we are, we are, we are apart from your help, bad uh, instruments and bad conveyors of such divine truth. Uh, so we need your help. And same for those who hear, apart again from your help, apart from the work of the Spirit. Oh, the heart is so easily distracted, we're restless. We don't have the taste for things that are divine, but we pray you would give us both the hunger and then the satisfaction that comes alone from your word. May Jesus be magnified in every heart. We ask in his name. Amen. 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 So, <clears throat> uh, we turn to those, those verses, and um, in a moment then, what I'll be preaching uh, to you, of is one of the names and titles of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, and um, the significance that we ought to attach to this particular name that the Apostle um, uh, highlights here. I want to, I will explain soon why he uses the title, um, but essentially to ask ourselves what the import, the uh, importance of this title is and its ramifications for us. So I wonder how many names and titles of Christ uh, you could uh, scribble down, you know, without, uh, without help, how many you would, you would get to. And there's numerous, there's several in the New Testament. I imagine if we allowed the names that were there just implicitly as well, you could probably write up hundreds, well, at least a good hundred from the scriptures in its entirety. Um, but there's several in the New Testament names that are applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm sure you know a few of them. Um, we call him Lord, we call him the Vine, uh, we call him uh, the Son of God, uh, the Bridegroom. This was a Bible study I asked you to... Uh, to throw some my way, you still feel free to do that. But yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's loads of them, loads of these titles that we attach to the Lord Jesus Christ and um, appreciating the significance of, of all that, why he has so many names and, and, and titles. I think a number of things, um, one of the things is that the, the names and titles very often in the New Testament, almost without fail, they connect Jesus Christ to um, a promise that God has made in the Old Testament. 
So when you when you when you hear the rarely is there a name attached to Christ in the New Testament that is not rooted in the the, the scriptural author's uh, awareness or uh, own appreciation of what God is saying in the Old Testament. You know, so uh, as as the as the Old Testament is teaching us about God and about his character and about his promises and the names that are attached to, 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 to God are then applied to Jesus Christ. And one, one, one thing that does is show us that Jesus Christ is, is very God. But the other thing it shows us, and this is one thing that is uppermost in Paul's mind in this passage, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises for humanity. Um, and so a lot of these, these, these titles that, you, that we see used to refer to Jesus in the New Testament, they do just that. They remind us that the Bible is one. They remind us that Jesus Christ is the one. Uh, is, is God's promised Messiah, the one in whom all God's promises for humanity are fulfilled. And, and they also reveal God's character because Jesus Christ is very God. And so they tell us something about who the living God is, what God is like. Uh, they reveal Jesus Christ himself and the sufficiency of his redemptive work. Um, they tell us what it is he came to accomplish, what it is he has accomplished for sinners. The, the, the privileges, the benefits. You can just think of any of those names and, you know, um, you, you begin to say, this, this is what it means to me. And so we Christians say, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. One of the things we're, we're, we're talking about is the various ways in which we can, we can uh, apply certain titles and names to Jesus Christ that then show us that he is all-sufficient. He is Savior. So you, you, you think of it as you being in a, you know, sometimes being in a particular strait, a particular difficulty, and calling Jesus by one of his names, one of his titles, and remembering that he is sufficient. You know, it's like if, if like uh, one of his names, and I'm just borrowing a, a, one of Paul's earlier references here, one of the names of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is that he's, he's, he's paraclete, he's, he's comforter, comes alongside his own. Um, and um, imagine someone who's in, in a time of agony and realizing, but this Jesus is a comforter, right? You, you know he's... He's sufficient for everything. He's, he, you, and so the names do that for us. They, they, they remind us of his all-sufficiency, and so they strengthen our faith, uh, reminding us that, because sometimes we come into situations where Satan wants to tell us, Jesus is not enough for this, and you're going to need more than this here. Jesus might be able to give you this, but he can't help you here. And then you realize, no, but his name is also, and his title is also, and it tells me that Jesus can, can do this. Uh, but Paul introduces what I think is actually a, a rarer name. I don't know how many of you, if I had asked you to write the list of names that you could think of in, say, a 30 seconds or a minute or so, would have written down Amen. Would have said his name is Yes. Right? Uh, Paul uses both terms interchangeably. Yes in the, is, is the Greek. Uh, is he, Paul writing as a, as a, as a, in, in the Greek. Amen is the Hebraic roots that form uh, this title that, that is the Jewish roots that form this title that Jesus Christ, that, sorry, that Paul gives to Jesus Christ. And Paul says he's, he's, um, he's our amen. He's, he's our yes. And I, I wonder how many of you uh, uh, know what that signifies. How many of you can appreciate it? How many of you have ever thought that Jesus Christ is your amen? I wonder how many of you know what amen means, even though you said it you know, more times maybe than you said your own name. Um, amen. Right, what do you, when you say that in prayer, I always like catching people out when I'm reading through the scriptures. And you know people who are not paying attention because when you're reading a Bible verse that says amen, they just respond amen as well. It's like, oh, you, know, you, weren't, you weren't listening to the reading, were you? You were just waiting for that amen to, to hit. Um, so what does amen mean, right? Um, and um, we need to know that, don't we, to appreciate 
what, um, what Paul is saying, and I'll say that in a moment. But just to quickly set the context for you from which Paul um, magnifies Jesus Christ by calling him the Amen. Second Corinthians is, a, is an epistle I, pre- I preached in, uh, uh, preached at uh, Stockwell Baptist last week, where Brother Yannick is minister, and I was preaching from this book as well, and I was explaining that, that the context is one, it's almost warfare-like, um, sadly, for the Apostle Paul. It was one of those churches where, to say rather quickly, uh, the Apostle Paul had had known good fruit, he had known good ministry there, set, set up this church, but the nature of Paul's calling, the nature of his business, meant that he never was able to stay in one congregation for any side of any real extended period, uh, maybe in his early years of ministry, but as things went on, that was rarely ever the case. So he, he could only pay visits intermittently. He could only receive updates from fellow workers who he trusted. Corinth was one of those churches. And Paul had set up that church. He had left it for a while. And almost three, four years down the line, looking back now, he had started to realize there was a lot of opposition in the church. There had been folks and who had entrenched themselves in the life of this church and who were now uh, attempting to undermine the Apostle Paul. So when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, a lot of it is Paul defending his, his apostolic ministry, defending his ministry, even having to respond to insults about his character and the kind of person that he was. And very, very early on in this book we see this. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, from verses 15 to 16, Paul is telling the, the folks of Corinth about unfulfilled travel plans that he made. You know, um, you think of it, you have to remember that in, in that time, journeying and traveling wasn't as easy as it is for us today. So when someone said they were coming to see you, uh, it was a very significant thing. And so for him to cancel it, you know, some of us would cancel on folks the same day. Some of you are specialists at that WhatsApp cancel. The morning, morning of the day I was coming to you, you say, oh, you know what, I'm going to have to cancel. You, you could do that today, but it wasn't so... Uh, it wasn't. It was. It wouldn't have been as comfortable then. And Paul had to cancel one one journey, one trip to these folks at Corinth. And um, the his enemies had taken that small thing without actually explain, asking the apostle Paul why he why why didn't you fulfill your, your journey plan, your travel plans? But they, they wanted him out of there. They wanted to undermine his authority. They were false teachers. They wanted to, 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 to deceive God's people. So they would take advantage of that, for example, and say, as Paul seems to indicate, verse 17 especially, that he was someone who, he wasn't serious about his ministry. You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't serious about preaching the word. He, he, he was someone that took, he took things lightly. If he was serious about you guys, if he was serious about the gospel, if he really believed the stuff he was preaching, would he really be so... Uh, would he, would he really vacillate the way he does? Would he be so here and there? Would he be so wishy-washy? Yes and no, yes and no. Um, in fact, is this indecision in the apostle that you see in the way he uh, arranges his travel plans, his inability to be able to just fulfill one travel plan, isn't it a mark of the fact that he's someone who walks according to the flesh? Can you really call this man an apostle of Jesus Christ? If he was really a spiritual man, would he not be able to just manage his, his diary, his travel, travel plans. All of this being said to undermine Paul's apostolicity. Now, I don't want you to think that Paul is overly concerned with his apostle, his personal, what people think of him, his own personal opinion. He's actually more concerned to defend his apostleship. And you'll see this in a moment because he goes from, a, from zero to 100. People are accusing him of, being, of, of playing around with his travel plans. And he says, 
well, as, as sure as God is faithful, I don't play around with my travel plans. You'd be like, whoa, it's, it's a little accusation. But actually, Paul knows that the, what's being posed at him is a pretext for something deeper. When they say to him he's, he's flimsy with his travel plans, they're saying he might not even be worthy listening, of, of listening to as an apostle. And that's a serious thing, because the apostles are the foundation of the church. To say that these Christians should ignore his... Should, 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 should ignore his, 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 his calling as an apostle, or to undermine the confidence they have in Paul as an apostle, Paul knows could inevitably lead to them to undermining the confidence these believers have in the gospel. Not only do you undermine the man and his calling, you soon undermine his message and ministry. So when Paul begins to defend himself in such robust terms, it's not because he's ultimately concerned for what people think of him. It's very clear that's not the kind of man Paul was. It's because at this point, He's dealing with making sure Christians who he loves so dearly abide in the faith. Just by the way, and I was mentioning this in my preaching last week, I think maybe the, it'd be helpful if the more crucial way by which we, we, we tested or measured the health of our churches was a question of apostolicity. Is this church an apostolic church? I think that would make, that would make for better, better ways of assessing the nature of our church. The way this church lives... Does it accord to the kind of example we have seen from that early New Testament church or from what we would call apostolic ministry? Because today, churches, they judge themselves by all kinds of things. You know, a church is, says it's healthy just because it's Baptist. So we baptize, we don't baptize babies and so we're healthy. It's not the case. You could, you could do that and still not be apostolic in the way you do your things. Even you could go to something as deep as a church saying it's reformed because it has five points of Calvinism, right? You could believe those doctrines and still not be apostolic because, for example, apostolic doctrine will tell you that it was always way more than just intellectual apprehension of a doctrine. It's also how you lived it. Um, I was preaching last week from Second Corinthians on spiritual warfare. I wonder how many churches actually ask themselves, do we engage in spiritual warfare? But that's the kind of question that follows on from being an apostolic church. You say, are we, are we in line with, not merely just any tradition, are we in line with some kind of denomination, but are we apostolic? The way we do ministry, does it harken back to the kind of example that has been set by these uh, unique messengers of the Lord? And Paul knew that where folks de de departed from apostolicity, they were departing away from the gospel itself. And that's why his defense is so robust. He's a def it's a defense not just of his, he, him as a person, but of the message. And you see, you see what the defense is. Paul says, they accuse me of being someone who is fleshly, and, you, and apparently you can tell this fleshliness by the way I'm undecided, and almost I lack integrity, or I'm incapable of being faithful. And he says in verse 18, but you know, as, he, he almost, I think he swears here, he, he brings God to witness. As, as sure as God is faithful, we don't have a wishy-washy ministry. We don't have a, a, an insincere ministry. As sure as God is faithful, we are also men and men of integrity who proclaim a faithful gospel, a faithful doctrine. Uh, and, and, he, and he goes on to say, basically, how can you question my character or my doctrine when you know I have faithfully preached Jesus to you? You know, when I preached Christ to you, did I preach him in a way that would fill you with any reason, give you any reason to question my faithfulness as a minister? Or did I preach this Jesus 
who you know is the very substance of God's faithfulness. And I think from there, there's almost a yielding on Paul's part to some kind of doxology, a praise, a praise break. Away from just offending himself, he goes on to praise this Jesus, who he says is the very, verse 20, he's the very yes of God. In him, all the promises, all the promises of God in him are yes. Um, and, and, and by him, we, 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 we sing a great song of amen. We say amen to the word of God. It's, 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 he, he gives himself, he, he begins to praise Jesus Christ as the one who is the very yes of God, the one who is the very amen of God. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, what Paul has in mind when he says um, that, that, that Jesus Christ is God's amen. What does this title mean? And so I will show you three things. I'll show you the sense, the meaning of this. What does it mean to say Jesus Christ is God's amen? What does Paul have in mind? And then, um, rather briefly, the next two points, the sign. What, is, what does Paul indicate is the, it, it, there's, there's, there's something that signifies that this Jesus Christ is the one in whom God's promises are fulfilled. There's something that signifies that this Jesus Christ is God's amen, as Paul will see it. And then thirdly, um, the, the significance that Paul attaches uh, and, and how that applies to us. There's a significance that Paul attaches to Jesus Christ being uh, the amen of God and uh, that applies to believers today. So firstly, the, the sense. What does it mean that Paul calls Jesus Christ the amen? Now, Paul is using vocabulary that you should be familiar with, that I am familiar with. The only reason why we're not familiar with it is because we don't often ask ourselves the meaning of the things we say. We don't often know what amen means. We don't often know what hallelujah means. Right? But we say those things, uh, but actually when you think of it, uh, we, we, we deserve a bit of rebuke for, 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 for being comfortable to say things, especially in the church, if we don't know the meaning of them. So Paul is saying something that the people were familiar with, something that was at the very heart of Israelite worship. Um, I, I read the book of Nehemiah where the people respond in, res in response to the reading of God's word, the people say, Amen, Amen. And so, and so amen is, the very, is at the very heart of the of worship jargon, right? In, in the right church, I would have had a couple amens by now, right? People would have said amen, amen, amen. It's the, it's the vocab vocabulary of the, of, of, of the Christian people. Um, and it, it, it comes from a, a Jewish word that kind of Im implies almost a foundation, solidness, something you can be, um, something that's sure. Of course, as it became the expression of, of worship, it, it, it came to mean indeed, right? Uh, we affirm that this is true, and, and so sometimes in the New Testament, you know, it's used when 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 a, an, a, when a speaker wants to indicate that what they're saying is absolutely certain. Our Lord Jesus Christ often used it. The verily, verily that you might have in the KJV is it would also be translated, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly. This is true. So Jesus Christ, so, so Paul says, Jesus Christ is the amen of God. I, I think what Paul says is something tantamount to saying that almost every amen, every indeed, every true that has ever been uttered in the universe can only be uttered and can only be true because Jesus Christ exists, because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because Jesus is alive. As far as our worship is concerned, Paul is saying to us, just, just imagine, every prayer, every praise, every deep, heartfelt emotion 
that we often pour out in worship, every longing that we bring to the house of God, every experience of salvation and conversion, every deliverance, every repentance, every restitution, all these things that occur in the dynamic of the worship life of God's people and are sealed by the confidence of an amen are fulfilled in Christ himself. God never met a person in worship outside of Jesus Christ. Nobody was ever transformed by the very face of God outside of Jesus Christ. People never leave the presence. No one ever said, I came and I was in the presence of God and I was saved by it. Apart from Jesus Christ, every promise that God has ever made to be in communion with men and women like ourselves, every promise that God has ever made to forgive sinners, to show mercy to people, he only makes in and through, because of and by his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the center of all worship. He's the cause and he's the end. Because that's what amen reminds you of. Amen reminds you of something that is the very fabric of worship, the very heart of worship. And what is the purpose of an amen if God doesn't hear it? Right? If we pray and we say amen a million times, but God doesn't care about it, it's pointless, it's purposeless. It's just the uttering of words. We say amen with a confidence that God is going to back what we say. And Paul tells us that only happens because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that tells us about the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul tells us he's... He, he, He's God's son, verse 19, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you, has no, there's, there's no yes or no in him, but everything is yes. Uh, Paul says, because Jesus is the son of God, and because he is the one who reveals the father, everything in him is yes, because he's the son of God. Uh, that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying because, because he's God's son, we can, we can trust that he specially reveals the Father. He knows the Father. He can lead us to the Father. But not only is he the son of God, he's Jesus Christ. He's Jesus, the Messiah. And so when Paul refers to Jesus Christ as, as God's amen, he's telling us how all God's promises for humanity are fulfilled in him. That's why he's God's amen. He's the one that has purchased redemption on behalf of sinful humanity. There's no way to the Father but by him. He is God's amen. If we, if we want to know whether God says, yes, I will forgive sinners. Yes, I will redeem sinners. It's in Jesus Christ alone. It's in Christ that God says amen. It's in Christ that God reveals his own sure, faithful word. In Jesus Christ is where all God's promises to save sinners are fulfilled. And so there is no salvation outside of him. And that's the meaning of that, right? That outside of Jesus Christ, God has no promise for a man or a woman. Outside of depending on Jesus Christ, God promises blessings to nobody. But in him, in him alone, do we hear God's amen? Do we see God's amen? Does God promise to fulfill his promises? In Jesus Christ 
Jesus Christ is that mediator that convinces us that God will be faithful to us. So in a sense, men and women, you can't speak of God's faithfulness unless you are putting your confidence in Jesus Christ. But if your confidence is in Christ, then God's promise is sure. Right? And, and so uh, that means, friends, that we, 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 can, we can be confident that the, the promises of God in Jesus Christ will never fail. Paul says in verse 20, all the promises of God in him are yes, they are sure, they are certain. Nothing that God has promised us in Christ will ever fail. Nothing that we call upon God for by the name of Jesus Christ will ever fail. He said to his disciples, ask that your joy may be full. Anything you ask in my name, I will give to you. If God has made us promises in Christ Jesus, then they will be certain. Has God promised us that if we call on Jesus, we'll be saved, there will be salvation? Has God promised us that if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us through Jesus Christ? Then he'll forgive our sins. Has God promised us that for those who are in Christ, he will never leave them nor forsake them? He will never leave us any, nor forsake us. Has God promised us that in Jesus Christ, uh, we, he will keep us to the very end and we will persevere to the end and we will do just that? The promises of God in Christ Jesus will never fail. And so there is nothing more sure, nothing more certain, nothing worth building our hopes on than the Son of God. In, in a changing, in a fleeting, a decaying world, the only thing that stands sure are the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, so build on him. Something that, 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 one thing that the fact that Christ is called the Amen indicates is that he's a sure foundation. Those of us who hear the apostle refer to Jesus Christ as God's Amen need to be hearing the call to build all of our life on him. When you build on Jesus Christ, when you depend on him, you are depending on that which is certain, that which is truly sure. Everything else will fade away. Everything will pass away. But Jesus Christ remains sure. And even Christians, can, we have to be careful to do that. Even Christians have to be careful to make sure that in our day-to-day -day living, we are depending on the Jesus who is sure. We are, we, are, we, are, we are planning our lives according to the sure word of Jesus Christ. Who are we going to depend on? In any given situation, you have the chance to choose your own sinful desire. You have the chance to choose the flesh. You have the chance to choose the world. Or are you going to choose to build on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ? Uh, say Jesus Christ tells us that there's a way to work, for example. And the world tells us, no, 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 you can work this way and still be successful. Who are you going to choose to build your foundation on? The, the, the foundation that the world offers you might get you that money quickly, but in the end, it's going to lead to destruction. The, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ is sure. He, his is a sure foundation. We can depend on it. In the end, it will not crumble when the storms come. When the winds blow, the foundation of Jesus Christ will stand secure. And so for Christians, we have to build all our lives on that foundation. Every single part of our lives. We say, this is God's, amen. This is God's sure word to us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to build on him. I'm going to build on this rock. I'm going to build uh, my, 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 my life on this foundation that will never sink. Build it on Jesus Christ. He's the solid rock on which we must stand. Jesus Christ tells us, sorry, Paul tells us, Christ is God's amen. And if we're in him, 
we are we're certain, we're sure. Um, so that's the sense uh, for the Apostle Paul. That's what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. He's the one in whom all God's promises are fulfilled. And so he can be relied on. As God is faithful, the promise of God in Jesus Christ is faithful. And then he tells us that there is a sign of this. Um, Jesus Christ is the amen of God, the, uh, the one that, in whom all God's promises are fulfilled. If Jesus Christ is the one who gives us things that we can be sure of, the things that we can be truly sure of. Paul tells us that these promises, there's a sign of that promise. There's a, a sign of how God fulfills that promise in us. There's a way in which we, we there's, an experience, there's experiences that the Christians have. There are, there are things that God gives to Christians that allow them to be, to be sure that Jesus Christ is the amen, that, that remind them that Jesus is the foundation worth building on. And, you know, if the sign of this was, say, wealth, for example, then it'd be very hard to proclaim the Christian faith. If the sign that God was on our side and that God would be faithful to us, if the sign that God was going to keep us, if the sign that God's promises to us in Christ Jesus would be fulfilled was wealth, for example, then there'd be so many people who'd be like, I'm not relying on the amen and I still have wealth. Whilst on the other side, there'll be people who, relying on the amen and having faith in him, have no wealth. If the sign was, was, uh, was health, the same thing, right? Um, if the sign was, you know, peace in the nations or something, the same thing. But the sign that God gives us is the sign of the Holy Spirit. So verses 21 and 22, Paul, wanting to almost illustrate the fact that God has given us sure promises in Jesus Christ introduces the person of the Holy Spirit in verses 21 and 22 he says now he who has established us confirmed us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who has also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts and so Paul mentions four things that are um, the special work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians. And what Paul says is, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is the confidence that a Christian has that God has made promises to him or her that will be fulfilled. God has made promises to us that no one can take away. What's a sure sign of that? What's a sure sign that Jesus Christ is our amen? Is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks about his work in four ways. First, he says... The Spirit confirms us. So in verse 21, he who establishes us, right, is who confirms us. This is one thing the Spirit does. He confirms the believer. Now, in these verses, Paul uses a variety of kind of legal and commercial and religious terminology. And so... um, the, the, word, the word here for confirm seems to have been used very often in, in, uh, in sort of in legal terminology in Paul's day uh, to indicate that, um, so, you, so you buy something from someone and, and they give you something to confirm that it belongs to you and not to anyone else. They confirm that with you. And so no, a third party couldn't come and get involved and say, oh, but that's mine. They give you something to guarantee, to, to confirm that. Um, And and Paul uses that to describe what the Spirit does to us. And so essentially, Paul says the the Spirit confirms in the heart of Christians that they belong to the Lord. He he, he confirms the validity of our relationship to God, that we're actually God's people, that these things we believe are not 
just, they're, they're not myth. Uh, they, they, they're not something we made up in our own imagination. This is, we're actually, we actually are in a relationship with the living God. As, the, um, as, as, as Paul says in one of his other epistles, the spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. You know, there are many ways to, you could try to explain why you're a Christian. Uh, but I think at, at root, there is, there is a way that goes, there, there is a reason, the deepest reason is beyond uh, exp logical explanation almost. It's beyond what folks can simply hear. It, it, it gets to the, to, the, to the point of what you must experience. Now, of course, I could say I'm a believer because I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I could say I'm a believer because I follow Jesus. And I could say, uh, and I could defend my faith from so many vantage points, the, the, um, the, the proof of the resurrection and the, 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 the magnificence of God's word, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's royalness, it's, it's consistency. I could, I could do, we could do that. We could, we could speak about the, the life of the church, how age through age the church has, no one can put out the, the fire and the power of the church. It continues to spread and continue to grow, even in the midst of persecution and so on and so forth. We could, we could, we could, we could point to so many things that make Christianity a ras the rational religion to follow as a religion of God. But ultimately, the, 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 the reason why a man is a Christian, why a woman is a Christian, is because of this mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, where he the Spirit confirms that we are God's children. And so all of a sudden, that's why the message of the gospel is not just merely an intellectual idea to you, it's the kind of thing that you depend on. The message of the gospel is not just something you can explain, it's something you actually experience. The death of Christ on the cross is not just something that has happened, but something that has happened for you. The Spirit confirms that we are God's children. He lets us know. He, he, he works in us to, so that we are confident that we belong to God. He also anoints us, Paul says um, in verse 21. He, he confirms us, he anoints us. Now, that, that word anoint is a word that we're familiar with in the Old Testament. It's the word that was often used when priests and kings and prophets were anointed uh, to say that they were being commissioned for service. And so when Paul says that God anoints us by the Holy Spirit, he's telling us, that God equips us to serve him in this world. One way by which we know that God has made promises to us that can never fail is the way his Holy Spirit equips us to serve him. How he, he, he gives us the boldness to share the gospel. How he helps us to understand the gospel. The, 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 the Spirit's empowerment in the life of the church. How congregation after congregation experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so we can do gospel ministry. That's how we know that this God is with us, because we see, we, see, we see the Spirit's power among us. Paul says he seals us, right? He, he, there's, there's a stamp on us. He stamps his people. Um, and, and so the word for seal there is, again, in, in, in Paul's day, it would have been a word in commerce. It would have been how when you, when you were about to send your goods off, you stamped it so that people knew it was yours. It'd be like branding your cows or something. You put your name on it. You put your stamp of ownership. And Paul says... Christians have God's seal on them. You know, the Spirit works in our lives in such a way that there is indisputable evidence that we belong to the Lord. That's why Christians are able to ask, we're able to ask questions like, what are the signs of conversion? And if you sit down 50, 60 Christians together and you ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? 
you're, you're bound to hear very, very similar things. If you say, what are the things you saw in your lives that made you know that you were God's child? What were the things in your lives that made you know that the Holy Spirit had taken up residence in your person? You're going to hear very, very similar things because it's the same Spirit at work giving us that indisputable evidence that we belong to the Lord. And then Paul says, lastly, that he guarantees us in verse 22. He has not just sealed us, but God has given us the guarantee of the Spirit. That is it's almost like a down payment, a deposit. right? So the, the work of the Spirit in our lives is a deposit that God has given to Christians to assure them that he has, he's going to fulfill the promise in them for them of future glory. Right, so uh, when, when they ask a Christian, what's the evidence you have that you're going to go to heaven? What's the evidence you have that there is a heaven, there's a new creation? We, we don't say, well, actually I read a book by a guy who said he, he, you know, he spent six days in heaven when he had a near-death experience and he saw Jesus and he saw angels. We don't say that. We, we say, we've seen the work of the Spirit in the church. We've seen God's Spirit bring heaven down to earth. And because of that, we are sure that there's heaven. That's the greatest sign that there's, there's heaven. It's the greatest sign that Jesus Christ is coming back. It's the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so at that point, it becomes very strange that Christians should... We, we sometimes take eternal things so lightly when we actually... If we're, if we're Christians, every single day of our lives, we see eternal things. Every single day of our life, every single time we, we, we join with the church, we experience eternal things. So we actually have the deposit, the down payment. We see that, that actually God is going to one day return and usher us into glory. And, 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 and Paul basically says, it's the work of the Spirit to remind you that God has made promises to you that will be accomplished promises to you in Jesus Christ that he's bound to fulfill. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit assures us that God is going to fulfill his promises to us. So Jesus Christ is God's amen. He's the one in whom um, all of uh, God's promises are fulfilled and he's given us the sign of that. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that on the day of Pentecost, it's Jesus Christ who pours out his spirit. So Christ dies, he rises again as God's champion. He accomplishes all that he has to for, for his people. And then he gives us the sign that actually in him God's promises are yes. He gives us the sign. And that sign is the Pentecostal sign. is the outpouring of the Spirit. And every time we see the move of the Spirit, and as we remain sensitive to what it is for the Holy Spirit to, among us, to be among us, and we see him transforming our lives and changing us, and we live in such ways that we, try, we, we, we avoid grieving the Holy Spirit, what we're saying to ourselves is God is fulfilling his promises among us. And you, can you see why nothing can change that? Why no amount of loss that we face in this earth can change that? No amount of pain or suffering can change that because even in the midst of all these things all the pain we go through all the suffering all the regret even in the midst of those things the believer can still see the work of the spirit we can still see and what does that mean god is fulfilling his promises because sometimes satan wants to tell you is he really fulfilling his promises is he really going to come back is Jesus Christ really so great when he's not, the, he, he, he's not the, the, the one who makes the news, when he's not the one who the people, who, whose names the people yell, when he doesn't have the biggest celebrities, when he's not always celebrated? Is he the one? And we can say actually yes, because every day we see the work of his spirit. 
And so, what, what's the significance that Paul attaches to that? Well, in, in this context, Paul is speaking about his own ministry. And what Paul says is, because I believe that Jesus Christ is God's amen, and because I have seen the sign in the move of the Spirit, I commit myself to Christ-centered ministry. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is, I'm not, I'm not someone who is... Who's, who's yes and no. I'm not someone who tries to compromise. I'm not someone who's crafty with my message. I'm straightforward. And I think he, Paul's saying, I'm, I straightforwardly proclaim the gospel. So the significance for us that Jesus Christ is God's amen is that there has to be, a, there's an absolute necessity of Christ-centered ministry. Right? We, we seek faithful gospel ministry. We seek to proclaim Jesus and nothing else because it's Jesus that's God's amen it doesn't matter what the people want to hear people come with itching ears people want to hear another message but God doesn't say amen to those things God doesn't fulfill those things we, we, we have no promise of God's power among us we have no promise of God's spirit among us if we preach politics right uh, if, if, we, if we preach business if we preach health God doesn't promise to move by his Holy Spirit when congregations do that, where God promises to move is when people proclaim his son, Jesus Christ, who is the amen of God. And so it's a commitment to radical Christ-centered ministry. That means when we, when we come to God's house, we want to hear nothing but Jesus Christ. We want to hear him and his, his glory and his will. And, 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 and so we come with a desire to hear that and we're committed to preach that. Uh, the, the Christ-centered ministry. Because where that is proclaimed then we, we have God's promises being fulfilled among us. When, when Jesus Christ is being, every single time Christ is proclaimed, every single time without fail, we're hearing the promises of God that he's bound to fulfill. The things that are really sure. You know, it, 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 it'd be the greatest tragedy for you to leave the, the meeting of God's people holding on to things that actually are fleeting, things that pass away, things that change, depending on the, on the, on the trend of the day. Depending on the, uh, the, 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 the socio-economic factors of the day. We have things that truly last, come what may. And so we need to be proclaiming Jesus. And also it means that Christ is the only way. He's the only way, right? Paul says that Jesus Christ is God's amen. It's in him that God's promises are fulfilled. And regardless of how folks might understand it, uh, certainly we should not be intolerant but we don't but this is not intolerance this is a, this is about truth and um, that, that's not to say that the proclamation of truth and compassion are, are, are exclusive things or whatever but we do have to say that Jesus is the only way to God in him God fulfills his promises outside of Jesus Christ and a radical dependence on him for everything you have no promise of God you're outside his kingdom and I can say that to say, I say that to say one, that means that our only hope of knowing God's mercy and grace is by depending entirely on Jesus Christ. And, you know, in the, in the New Testament, that is contrasted even with a reading of Moses. So what that means is me saying something like, even if you read your Bible, that's not enough. Just reading your Bible is not enough. Your, your religious services are not enough. We're not saved by those things. We must depend on him alone. We read our Bible so that we may learn to depend on him, then yes. 
But that's not what saves us. Our confidence as Christians is not the things we do. Our hope for mercy and forgiveness is nothing that we resolve to be. But everything that he is, you have nothing to add to him because in him, God's promises are fulfilled. They're all amen in him. He's the amen of God. Nothing else to bring. We often sing a hymn like that. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross to cling. Jesus Christ is the only way. But outside of him, God doesn't make any promise to anybody. Outside of him, God has no promises for Muslims. He has no promises for Buddhists. He has no promises for Sikhs. He has no promises for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have any promises for the poor. has no promises for the rich. has no promises for those who suffer. has no promises for those who rule. It's all in Christ. If God will be your God, and if you will know his mercy, if your sins will be forgiven, if you will be cleansed, and if you will have a hope in heaven, it must be because you, real, you rely on the one who Jesus Christ calls God's amen, God's constant, God's certain, the one in whom God has fulfilled his promises. Jesus Christ is the only way. And lastly, actually what Paul says in this is, because we believe Christ is the only way, because we believe he's God's amen, our response is then to sing amen or to speak amen. So he says that in verse 20. All the promises of God in him are yes. They're amen. So, yeah, are amen. And so we join. I don't know if it's singing or if it's prayer or if it's just the entire life of worship, even in preaching, we say amen to this. Because he is God's amen. Uh, those of us who believe that he is God's amen, we respond with amen. That means we say, on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. That means we say, he is the one worth proclaiming. I think of it in those three ways. I think of it in prayer. The foundation of our praying is the fact that Jesus is the amen. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful to give import to give meaning to give sense to that small word amen when we pray together and we say together amen for it not just to be i just woke up but for it to be i have called upon god for promises that he has made in jesus christ who alone is the ground of any man's hope but in whom i can be sure god will hear me so amen it comes from deep because I know that because I called upon God in Jesus Christ's name, he's going to hear me when I pray. And this poor sinner cried, I didn't deserve to be heard, but in Jesus' name, amen. And when we sing songs of praise, we say amen. He's worthy of glory. Amen to that. Because there's so many things that we celebrate in this world that do us no good. People rejoice in substances and substance abuse and, and all kinds of, of, of vile patterns of life that actually drag them down. But this is something worth praising. This is a, a, a savior worth singing about. If you tell me um, Jesus was slain at Calvary for sinners, I want to sing an amen to that. You know, I used to, I remember there was this, some of you know it, there's a small uh, kind of ditty that goes amen, amen, amen. And, you know, people just sing that over and over again. Amen, amen, amen. It's a nice, nice tune, but it's pointless most of the time. Really, because you didn't know what you're saying. Why am I saying amen? Why am I singing amen? But maybe after the sermon, Maybe after the sermon, you go to the back and you take your friend, you take your husband, you take your, and you sing amen because you know what it means. You say, I know what amen means. Amen means that 
in Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling his promises. And even in response to preaching, maybe that's the, 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 the emphasis here. What Paul is saying is, when, when, when Christ is proclaimed, we say, Amen. This is what I mean, and this is what I'm trying to get, this is what I'm getting at. That for the first time in our lives, as we hear the gospel, when we hear Christ preach, this is the only place where there are things that we can be certain of. We go our whole lives hearing things that are just uncertain. Uh, a man's promise of love to his beloved, sometimes so uncertain. Right? Uh, a man's commitment to himself to gain wealth, to gain wealth to, supply, to support his family, so, sometimes so uncertain. A world just full of uncertainties. Your own heart just so uncertain. You can't trust it. And you get fed up of the world. The politician's voice, uncertain. But in the house of God, when Christ is proclaimed, this is the place where certainties are spoken. Where someone says, and I say, Amen. I love an Amen, you know, when I'm preaching. I love an Amen because there, I'm thinking, this is true. I've had so many pointless conversations in the past week. So many trivial conversations. So many conversations that will have nothing of lasting value. I've had so many. I've had to hear them. I've had to see them. Some of you, you work nine to five. You have to face it all day. And what a privilege to sit in a place where you could just say, Amen. These are serious things. These are things that last. These are things I can place all my hope and confidence in. These are things I can be sure of. These are things that when I go out into the world, I say, I'll never be alone because I have an amen. I have something I can say is true, regardless of what happens in this world. And so, friends, let us join with Paul and realize that Jesus Christ is God's amen. He is God's amen. And because we have him, and because we have God's Holy Spirit, we too can sing uh, amen. 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 Mm. Well, let's... Uh...